0: Good evening once again. Uh, we're going to be moving in actually to the last chapter of Colossians tonight, although we'll only get to the first uh, verse of that chapter. So the passage I'll be reading is Colossians three eighteen through 4, 1. And if you're going to turn there and follow along, I'll actually start from verse 17, which we covered last month, um, and that's where I'll start reading for tonight. So here's what the Lord is saying to us this evening through his word. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant that we may so hear, read, mark, Learn and take them to heart that by the patience and comfort of your Holy Spirit, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Well, there are certain topics or questions that we might ask that bring up what we would call touchy subjects. Um... Does Bigfoot really exist? Is there a better team in sports than the Green Bay Packers? Does ketchup belong on a hot dog? Is there a better candy that anybody has thought of than the tastiest candy ever invented, black licorice? The answer to all of these is obviously no, right, in my opinion, but you may feel strongly a different way about these things. Um, So, you know, we might call them touchy subjects, and there are other, perhaps more serious, touchy subjects, like the ones we'll look at tonight. But Paul doesn't shy away from these subjects, as we can see in these verses. He applies his teaching about doing everything in the name of Christ to three of the touchiest, yet most important relationships that his audience would have been a part of. And essentially, what he's telling us in this passage is, is that our new lives in Christ should express the love and the unity and the peace we have received by God's grace in our day-to-day lives, particularly in the family and in the workplace. We'll approach this text in the same order that Paul gives these commands, looking at each relationship in turn, first wives and husbands, and then children and parents, and then finally slaves and masters. So we'll start with the first two verses. 18 and 19, and before we even get into what Paul said here, I'd like to address the applicability of these instructions. So if you're not married, you might be thinking this isn't relevant to me, but I'd like to bring up again what Paul said a couple verses back in the passage we looked at last month. All Christians should be teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom So even those who aren't married, or with the next points, who don't have children, or who aren't employed or an employer, even those people need to hear these exhortations so that they can provide counsel and encouragement and sometimes needed rebuke for those of us who are in those types of relationship. So it's critical we all try to learn as much as we can from all of these instructions because of this responsibility we have toward one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. So again, the first relationship Paul addresses is the marriage relationship. He's addressing husbands and wives. And so you can get a good idea of who would have been originally hearing this. I think I should tell you that girls in first century uh, Greco-Roman world that would typically be married around age 14, and they typically married men who were one to two decades older than them. Uh, They wouldn't have met their husbands until their wedding day because their marriages were arranged between their father and the husband. The primary purpose of marriage was not companionship or love or friendship, but the production of children, a legitimate heir so that men could pass on their name and their property to a son. Women would typically marry only once. Men might marry two to three times, and this was because the difference in lifespan Many women died at young ages through the trauma of childbirth or the physical weakness caused by bad diets and regular blood loss. So as we hear Paul's words to these husbands and wives, we should keep all of these things in mind about who would have been hearing these commands. These instructions were being read to Colossian wives who might still be teenagers, with husbands who might be in their 30s and might be married for the second or third time. So Paul's first command goes to the wives. He addresses them first, and he says, Wives, submit to your husbands. Now, also up front, I'd like to say some things. This is one of those verses we hear a lot, sometimes used in the right way, sometimes not. So I'd like to say some things that Paul is not saying here. We'll note that he's saying, Wives, submit to your husbands. So this doesn't have to do with women and men in general. It's not as if all women are supposed to submit to all men in some way. These are specifically marriage instructions. And then second, Paul doesn't tell husbands to make sure that their wives are submitting or command them to be submissives. He addresses the wives directly. As responsible individuals, it's their obligation to submit themselves to their husbands. So this is how we should hear these commands. What does Paul mean, then, when he tells wives that they need to submit themselves to their husbands? Well, in a Christian context, this verb submit would remind them of the Lord Jesus, the ultimate example of humble service and submission. First, he voluntarily submitted himself to the Father in his mission to come and uh, in humiliation to accomplish salvation. And second, during his earthly ministry, he made himself a servant of all, humbly loving believers And unbelievers alike. So, the thrust of Paul's command is that Christian wives should approach their husbands humbly and lovingly, looking to serve their needs. And we're not told in practical terms exactly how this is supposed to work out. Paul doesn't provide in this passage or any of the other passages addressed to wives and husbands a detailed manual to follow, he just lays down some general principles. So the practical application of this commandment is left to the wisdom and discretion of each Christian couple to figure out for their marriage as a couple. Paul also adds to his command the qualifying phrase, as is fitting in the Lord. So Paul's saying that in the Lord, in the body of Christ, in the church, submission is a normal and expected thing. Like all Christians, seek the fellow good of their believers. The wife is to respect her husband and seek his good insofar as that is consistent with faithfully living for the Lord Jesus. Obviously, the Christian wife should not sin for her husband or encourage him in his sin. This is not the kind of thing that would be fitting in the Lord. Also, just as this command sounds strange to our ears, Paul's command to submit would have been countercultural in the first century, but for different reasons. The Greco-Roman wife was not expected only to be generally submissive and respectful to her husband, but to obey him, and to obey him in everything, like a child or a servant. But in the realm of Christ, and according to Paul's instructions, the rights of the husband over his wife are substantially limited. The husband is not the lord of the household. The only lord of the household is Jesus himself, and only Jesus determines what is appropriate and acceptable for Christian wives. Secondly, and more briefly, this phrase, as is fitting in the Lord, also seems to imply that, again, wives should base their submission and what that means on the example of Jesus. The manner of submission is to be influenced by the humble and sacrificial lifestyle of Christ. Moving on to verse 19, we find Paul's command to the Colossian husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Now, this seems kind of like a, well, of course, to us. But this verb love was only rarely used in pagan Greek ancient household codes, right? They would never, almost never tell husbands, you need to love your wives. So again, Paul is giving countercultural advice. Husbands weren't even expected to have any kind of relationship or even conversation with their wives. Their wives were much younger, as I've said, and they were simply there to bear children. But Paul says that as Christians, believing husbands need to exhibit the supreme new creation virtue of love to their wives. Recall that in 314, Paul said, above all the other virtues, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This God-given love will seal the bond of marriage and increase the essential unity between husband and wife. Their oneness will increase as love is shown between them. And this love will result in the Christian husband considering his wife's needs above his own. He'll care for her as he cares for himself. He'll imitate the love that he's received from Christ. He'll mirror the sacrificial and forgiving love of Christ, and all of this because... He's been first loved by God and been raised to new life with Christ. Paul finishes this verse by expanding his instructions to husbands, saying, Do not be harsh with your wives. He was trying to limit the bad behavior that was general, typical of the Greco Roman head of household. They had wives for the purpose of children, they had concubines or prostitutes for the purpose of pleasure, and they had male friends. For the purpose of companionship. Again, there wasn't even an expectation that husbands would talk to their wives, let alone treat them with love and kindness, like Paul is exhorting here. But now, since these Colossian men are in Christ, they have to act differently than the men that might be around them. They have to put off their old selves along with its practices. The believing husband is not free to do as he pleases with his wife, as other men might be. He is bound by the call to love. John Chrysostom, a uh, 4th century bishop in Constantinople, made a great point in his homily on this passage. He said, "...observe again that Paul has exhorted husbands and wives to reciprocity. From being loved, the wife, too, becomes loving. And from her being submissive, the husband learns to yield." So, there's a profound mutuality here. It's not as if submission is only something that wives do and love is only something husbands do. No, according to the new creation perspective, both husband and wife act toward one another in selfless love, submission, and service. So, Paul is telling these husbands don't be cruel to your wives, don't be punitive, don't treat them like they're your children or your slaves even if those things might be standard practice in the world around you. Rather, as the Holy Spirit enables you, love her and care for her as you love and care for yourself. In verses 20 and 21, Paul moves on to the next foundational relationship, that of children and parents. Children are addressed first, and the apostle tells them, obey your parents in everything. Now, it would have been very strange for Paul to address Children directly in a letter, but he does that here and it suggests a couple things. First, he assumes that children will be present in the worship service to hear these instructions. And second, he treats them as responsible moral agents capable of hearing and understanding and following his directions, specifically the direction to obey their parents. So I'll do the same. Kids, Paul tells you to listen to your parents and obey them. I'm sure you've heard that from your parents too, right? But that's not just their idea. That's God's command to you. That's what we see here in his word, that you should listen and obey. Now, when you get much older and you get a job and you move out of your parents' house and maybe you have your own family, do you still have to obey your parents I like I like the yes. That's a that's a, it's a good to desire to obey your parents. But at that time, you'll be you'll be grown-ups like them. So you you don't have to obey them anymore like you do now when you're little. You still have to honor them and respect them and love them. But until you grow up and move out and get a job and all those things, God says that you have to obey your parents in everything. Now, when he says everything, does that mean only the stuff you want to do? No. It means everything, right? Why? Because God commands it. And when you obey your parents, you're obeying God. Now, I will say, there is one thing that if your parents tell you to do it, you don't have to do it. Unfortunately, it's not homework, right, or your chores. It's sin. If your parents ever tell you to do anything sinful, you don't have to listen to them. In fact, you shouldn't obey them. Now, I'm not expecting that this will happen, that your parents will tell you to sin. But if they ever do, you shouldn't listen to them. So what is sinful? What is something sinful? Yelling. Yelling yeah, being disrespectful. Anything, what? Breaking God's, law. breaking God's law. That's exactly right. Anything that breaks God's law is a sin. So if your parents tell you to lie or to hate someone or hurt someone or steal something or say something bad about someone or anything else that breaks God's law, you shouldn't listen to them. Again, I don't think that this is going to happen, right? But, you know, your parents aren't perfect. They also struggle with sin. But in every other circumstance, God says, obey your parents in everything. So that's the instruction to you kids. And it still is today. Obey your parents. Okay, now back to the big people in the room. Paul says in verse 21, Fathers, do not provoke your children. Here we see Paul addressing not parents in general, but specifically fathers because, well, not because. It's like Paul thought it was a great idea for mothers to provoke their children. But again, it has to do with the cultural situation and what was normal at that time. A Roman father legally could basically do anything to his children. He could imprison them, he could scourge them, he could put them in chains, he could make them work long hours without breaks. He could even put them to death without facing any legal repercussions. But Paul is urging these Colossian fathers to have a drastically different approach to their children. Their children, as he's demonstrated by addressing them, directly in his letter, are also adopted children and part of the body of Christ. Therefore, they should consider what's best for their children rather than how they might use their children for their own gain or for their own advantage. What will be the result if parents don't heed Paul's advice not to provoke their children? Well, Paul says that their children will become discouraged. That word discouraged has to do With having one's spirits broken, the idea is that parents could behave in such a manner toward their child that the child becomes disheartened or embittered or angry or quarrelsome or all of the above. And then the child's negative emotional state could eventually lead to the point where they don't even want to do good or love anymore. I think we've all felt some degree of that kind of discouragement in our lives some sadly more than others, but all of this to say that fathers and mothers have a tremendous influence over their children. So they should do everything they can to do the opposite of provoking them to discouragement. They should raise them in the training and instruction of the Lord. They should nourish their children's souls with the word. They should love them and provide for all their needs, physical, spiritual, emotional. This is the call of Christian parents and It's very difficult, and we need a lot of help, and we mess up frequently, but the call remains with us. And thankfully, as we discussed several weeks ago, God's Spirit also remains with us to help us complete the task he's called us to. So parents, lean on the Lord for strength and wisdom in your mission to parent well, because we need lots of those things, lots of strength and lots of wisdom. And remember the good news that your failures, which will be many, have ultimately been accounted for and paid for by Christ. Finally, Paul addresses in the longest portion of this passage the relationship of slaves and masters th- from 322 to one. Again, just a quick note on slavery in the first century. Um, it's probably not entirely possible, but we should do what we can to try to remove what we know about American slavery, and not bring that into our reading of this passage, because things were quite different. That's probably why the the translators of the ESV have chosen a different word than slaves here. American slavery was usually much more harsh, much more dehumanizing than ancient slavery. Ancient slavery could be just as bad, but it could also lead to earthly riches and status. In either case, the slave was completely at the mercy of his master, if the master was kind and wealthy, a slave might have a better life than most other people. But if his master was harsh, a slave might have an unimaginably difficult life. So with this fact in mind, that the slave's quality of life was largely dependent on the character and the behavior of the master, Paul doesn't advocate for a total and immediate overthrow of the whole entire ancient economic system, which relied on slavery. He doesn't advocate for social revolution. Instead, he encourages Christian masters to treat their slaves as if they were not slaves. But I'm sort of getting ahead of myself here. So, first, we'll look at Paul's instructions to the slaves. In verse 22, he says, Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Now, for the third time, Paul is addressing a category of persons who would not have been considered worthy of the time of day at that time, right? Going against the common idea that slaves were animate articles of property, incapable of rational dialogue, Paul addresses them and considers them to be thinking, moral beings with the capacity to to develop a relationship with their masters and with the Lord Jesus. So slaves, in Paul's view, and in reality are not property, but are persons of equal and sacred worth, In the church. That's what Paul is saying. And we see also that they should obey everything that their masters tell them. He uses the same phrase as he used with the children. Obey in everything. Again with the assumption that their masters will not be commanding any kind of sinful behavior. Paul also specifies how they should obey in verse 22. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord. So he tells them to obey, not out of resentful duty, not hypocritically, but rather with genuine gratitude in their hearts. They should obey with sincerity, with an internal disposition of obedience, grateful for work, willing to work, because the Christian slave realizes his or her service is ultimately rendered to the Lord Christ himself. This is why Paul adds the phrase, fearing the Lord. Now, this doesn't mean a Christian should labor under the assumption that the Lord is always watching and looking and waiting to punish any hint of hypocrisy or insincerity or people-pleasing. It's not that kind of fear. Paul is simply pointing out that in the end, the heavenly master's opinion and approval matters far more than the earthly master's approval ever could. And then out of this respect for the heavenly master, the Lord Jesus flows a sincere motivation to obey earthly masters. Paul gives a second command to slaves in verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily. So they're not only to obey in everything, but they're to obey enthusiastically. They're to work hard. And they are to do so as for the Lord, not for men. This is an application of 317, right? This is one way of doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. It's how it plays out for the life of a slave. And Paul shifts the focus from an earthly perspective to a heavenly one. He's helping them set their minds on things above, as he said earlier in this chapter. He's letting these Colossian slaves know that they're not the property of their masters or mere instruments in their masters' hands. Instead, they're children of God and heirs who will receive his inheritance. Again, their true master is Christ. Which Paul says explicitly in verse 24. So why should they obey in everything and work heartily? Because they know that from the Lord they will receive the inheritance as their reward. For believing slaves, the motivation to obey is that they have a greater master, as we've said, with a greater reward awaiting them. Whatever earthly rewards they might receive for doing a good job, extra food, lodging, kind treatment from their masters, all of that pales in comparison to their heavenly reward. Now, this is certainly not to be understood as a reward given by God in response to believers' efforts. It's not merit. Remember from one twelve, it's God who qualifies the saints for a share in the heavenly inheritance. Paul's already made this clear. Our share in new creation glory has been earned by Christ, and that is the reward Paul is speaking of here as well. I think we could compare this kind of non-meritorious reward to an experience from my childhood. Perhaps you've had a similar experience. When I was in sixth grade, my family went on a trip to Disney World. Um, I didn't earn this vacation, but I was promised a share in it by my gracious parents, When I received the promise, the trip still lied in the future, right? So we didn't leave immediately for Orlando when they told me that we would be taking a trip to Disney. And in the meantime, I had work to do. I had responsibilities at school and assignments to complete. Again, the completion of this work and doing these assignments weren't earning the trip. The trip had already been promised to me. And since that was the case, there was joy in my heart, provided by the promise of the vacation, that made it a lot easier to work at school because I had this larger perspective. I think a similar idea is at play here as Christian slaves, and all Christians for that matter, wait for their heavenly reward. While we still look forward to eternal life with God, which, he has, which has been 100% secured by Christ on our behalf, we can labor dutifully and gratefully with a joyful hope in the future realization of that gift, which we have been promised a share in. Now, before turning to masters, Paul adds one more thing in his instruction to slaves. Verse 25 reads, The wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. This is essentially a warning of divine judgment, right? Sort of the opposite of the promise of inheritance that has just been given. This is a warning of divine judgment. And it's Paul saying that slaves don't need to take justice into their own hands. God will repay the abuse carried out by sinful masters. The Lord is no respecter of persons. The one who does wrong will receive the justice for that wrongdoing no matter their social standing in this age. Again, Paul is not advocating social revolution. This word to slaves is also by implication a word to masters and serves as Paul's way of transitioning into the final verse of our passage and his command to masters. The first verse of chapter 4 reads, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So masters are not to defraud They're slaves. They're not to take advantage of them, but rather they should provide them with what is right and what is fair. Again, this is very countercultural advice. Aristotle wrote that the issue of justice doesn't apply to slaves. How could there be injustice involved when you're talking about mere property? And that was the common idea. But Paul, as we've seen, considers slaves not as property, but as valuable human beings created in God's image our 21st century ears hear that and we think, well, of course. But these ideas were not commonplace at the time and Paul wrote these instructions so that Christian masters could go against what was common. So Paul tells these Christian masters in connection with the previous verse that in the same way God treats all his creation impartially with right justice, masters are to treat their slaves impartially as well. No slave should be given preferential treatment over other slaves. Also, masters shouldn't mistreat their slaves. They should compensate them for their labor fairly. They should provide good living conditions for them. They shouldn't um, abuse them in any way physically or with their words. And especially if their slaves are fellow Christians, masters must acknowledge that their slaves enjoy the exact same status that they do before God. In God's kingdom, both slaves and masters are equal. Christ is all and in all, as Paul said in the last verse, the previous passage. This is why, or in verse 11 of chapter 3. This is why Paul gives this command to masters, because even earthly masters have a master in heaven. This shifts the conceptions of the position and power of the master within the Christian community. Masters don't represent Christ. Rather, the relationship of slave to master is the relationship of all Christians to the Lord Jesus. Both earthly slaves and earthly masters are slaves to the heavenly Lord Christ. This fact cements the equal status of slaves and masters in terms of their standing before God and their status in the church. This new reading of reality allows Paul to Humble these men who were puffed up by the societal norms and expectations of their time and place. God is calling them to fulfill their duties as faithful and considerate masters, more conscious of their standing before God than their perceived standing above their fellow human beings. So, how do all of these instructions that we've heard tonight from Paul apply to us today? Well, I think his instructions to wives and husbands and children and parents don't need much cultural adjustment. Although the circumstances change, the timetables change, the expectations have changed, Paul's commands carry over well from the first century to the 21st. The Christian wife should show humble, willing, and respectful submission to her husband, not obeying him as if she were his child or his servant, but rather seeking to serve him in love. And likewise, the Christian husband should love his wife self-sacrificially, as the Lord Jesus has loved, also seeking to humble himself, submit to her needs, and serve her for her good. Christian children must obey their Heavenly Father by obeying their parents, whom God has given them. And Christian parents must respect their children as fellow members of the body of Christ, Valuable people to the Lord Jesus, raising them up in the teaching and instruction of the Lord, and doing everything they can to avoid discouraging, embittering, or enraging them. However, with Paul's instructions to slaves and masters, of course, there does need to be a little bit of adjustment culturally. And along with most other commentators and pastors, the best way to do this is to think as, of these instructions as applying to employees and employers. That's where most of these commands practically work out in our world today. So that being the case, employees should work hard at their jobs, seeking to complete all of their assigned responsibilities without laziness or without the desire to simply please either their coworkers or their boss or anybody else. They shouldn't work hypocritically, but genuinely recognizing that their sincere labor pleases the Lord. Employers must realize that despite the considerable amount of influence and authority they have over their employees in this world, they need to treat their workers fairly and avoid showing both favoritism and avoid taking taking advantage of their workers' labor. Like the passage we looked at last month, this passage is filled, again, with many commands for us to follow. And as people who still experience the after effects of having been in the old man, we'll fail. We'll mess up a lot as we try to follow these instructions. But we must remember the grace of our God. He has accomplished salvation for us. As we've said, our reward is secured. Following these commands is not a matter of justifying ourselves before him. He is fully satisfied and pleased with us as we are united to his son and have received his son's perfect righteousness. So then, these exhortations are not for us to earn anything from God, but they're guides for how we can express our gratitude for the salvation that's been given to us. The Lord, through Paul, has shown us what is appropriate for our new creation lives. Some of the ways that doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus plays out. And as those who have died to sin and been raised to life with Christ, we follow these guidelines without fear of judgment, looking to the reward that has been promised to us at the end of our earthly lives. So brothers and sisters, let's seek to spend our lives in loving service, To our families, to our co-workers, to our friends and neighbors, and to each other, recognizing that all of it is ultimately a service to God and for his glory. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Our God and Father, we thank you for the good news of what Christ has done for us. We pray that our new lives, which you have granted us, would be full of expressions of gratitude in accordance with what pleases you. Help us as we seek to follow these commands you've given us tonight through your Apostle. Give us the wisdom we need to apply these principles of love, submission, service, obedience, respect, hard work, fairness, and kindness. These things don't come naturally to us, so we ask that your Holy Spirit would cause them to spring up in us supernaturally. And we ask that all of the thankful obedience that we render unto you by your power, would glorify your holy name, and the name of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.